and another story of a vineyard from the New Testament. This is from Matthew 21, uh, verses 33 to 46. But this is kind of a power struggle. The story of the greedy farmhands. Here's another story. Listen closely. There was once a man, a wealthy farmer, who planted a vineyard. He fenced it, dug a wine press, put up a watchtower, and turned it over to the farmhands and went off for a trip. When it was time to harvest the grapes, he sent his servants back to collect his profits. But the farmhands grabbed the first servant and beat him up. The next one they murdered. They threw stones at the third, but he got away. The owner tried again, sending more servants. They got the same treatment. The owner was at the end of his rope. He decided to send his son. Surely, he thought, they will respect my son. But when the farmhands saw the son arrive, they rubbed their hands in greed. This is the heir. Let us kill him and have it all for ourselves. They grabbed him, threw him out, and killed him. Now, when the owner of the vineyard arrives home for his trip, what do you think he will do to the farmhands? And that was a question of Jesus to the crowd. He'll kill them, rotten bunch, and good riddance, they answered. Then he'll assign the vineyard to farmhands, who will hand over the profits when it's time. Jesus said, right, and you can read it for yourselves in your Bible, in your Bibles. And this is the reference that he gave. The stone the masons threw out is now the cornerstone. This is God's work. We'll rub our eyes. We can barely believe it. This is the way it is with you. God's kingdom will be taken back from you and handed over to a people who will live out a kingdom life. Whoever stumbles on this stone gets shattered. Whoever this stone falls on gets smashed. Now, when the religious leaders heard this story, they knew it was aimed at them. They wanted to arrest Jesus and put him in jail, but intimidated by public opinion, they held back. Most people held him to be a prophet of God. The son has been sent and has died for our sins and rose again and empowered us. And now we are the laborers in that vineyard and we are sent by God on this mission to gather more workers, to gather people to come. And that leaves us with the series that we've been embarking on these last few weeks. What do we do as laborers in this vineyard with so many unwilling workers? What do we do as laborers for God in this culture that has very, very much turned against God? Where does that leave us as the church? Now, before we get too far into today, um, I want you to think about what we'll be talking about today. I want you to reflect in your own minds on fellowship. We're going to be connecting fellowship, the idea of fellowship, with the idea of evangelism. 
and it's not a very hard jump. But right now I want you to think, what defines fellowship for you? And I want you to think, what is your fellowship like? What is your time of fellowship like with other believers? And what is your time of fellowship like with non-believers? We're not going to take time to reflect on it because I want you to be constantly thinking of that as we um, go through our sermon today. What we are going to take time on right now is a question, and I'm going to have you shout out the answers as soon as you think of them. Um, What defines our culture today? This difficult vineyard that we've described, this difficult situation, Uh, if we were to apply that to today's situation, what comes to mind? If you were to think of society around us, or maybe um, some of the younger generations that are up and coming, what thoughts do you have? Go ahead and shout them out as you have them. Okay, so thinking narcissism and and thinking of oneself, okay, self-determination, division, impatience, indulgence, greed, Did you say intolerance? Yep, intolerance. (laughs) Hypocrisy and uh, we'll say commitment with a question mark. Mm, Concern for justice. What's that? Well-being. Excellent. Oh yeah, that's good. Compassion in the face of tragedy and environmental um, concern, right? All right. Let's keep some of those thoughts in mind. All of these things are going to come together in the end. For right now, I want us to continue on in Acts. We're going to go to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to skip most of the chapter, and we're going to end up in verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything that they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Now, with all the things that we shouted out, 
I think we can understand we do live in difficult times. There seems to be injustice, and, and so it's rightful that there's a deep concern for injustice and a compassion for the brokenness of the world. And surely that has defined some of the attitudes that shape our post-Christian society. And yet, I really wonder, has any era in history ever been easy? And has any era in history ever been without brokenness and injustice? Because every single era has always been lined with speed bumps and roadblocks and, um, and blocks to this path to spreading the gospel. Now we read in Acts, before we get to this passage, Peter is giving this great sermon. The Holy Spirit has come upon the community and everyone is filled with the presence of the Spirit dwelling within them, like personally dwelling in their own, in their own spirits is the Holy Spirit. And Peter gives this amazing speech. And after that, 3,000 were added to their numbers. And that's impressive. But I'm focused on the end of the, the passage that we read today, where it says every single day more were added to their numbers. That's not just some one-time thing, that's every single day, there's something about the way that this group of people is living that is encouraging people to want to join in with them. Now, every era has hardship and roadblocks, and the church in Acts was no different. In fact, they faced lots of persecution, they faced imprisonment, um, they faced floggings, 39 times being flogged. That's just, just enough to keep a person barely alive. And that is the punishment for spreading the gospel. So yes, we live in a time and a place that um, is, is self-centered and narcissistic and broken and filled with injustice. We live in a very difficult time that's defined by all of those things that we shouted out. And yet, the people in the Church of Acts lived in a very, very difficult time also. And, and still, their numbers were growing and growing and growing. And it makes me say, why? Because we also define our society, um, Hans Eric defines it as a post-Christian -post society, um, around here especially, where people are so jaded to the gospel. So what was this magical equation that the Church of Acts used to be growing their numbers constantly? And I wish that it was written in the book, <laughs> but it's not. There isn't a magic equation, although I think that some Christian self-help books try to make there be one. And yet it's so simple. And the answer is in the Holy Spirit. So there's no magical equation, but I do think that in this passage in Acts 2, we're given some pretty good hints as to some things that we need to be doing to be reaching out to this hurt, broken world around us. Um, and all of these hints lead back to the Holy Spirit, by the way. That's a spoiler alert. So the first one 
the first hint that we have at reaching out to the world around us is the Holy Spirit himself. So back in chapter 1, which we talked about last week, the apostles were told to wait with their mission. They were raring to go. They wanted to get into action right away. And Jesus had told them to wait. Don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes and gives you the gift of the Spirit. And that's it right there, the gift of the Spirit. So we all have um, talents and gifts and and, um, abilities that are amazing. And you can proclaim the gospel day and night until your throat is gone and you have no more voice. Um, But without God backing us up, there's really no point to that. Without the Holy Spirit moving in us and through us and then moving in the people and through the people to whom we're, we're reaching out, there's just no point. And so the gift of the Holy Spirit within us is key. We only have this little tiny picture and our human understanding can only go so far, but the Holy Spirit is in us, the Holy Spirit God, who sees the grand picture, who sees everything, who knows what ridiculous, uh, shot-in-the-dark action will make all the difference to this random person over here, and we never even would have guessed it, but the Holy Spirit knew. Who knows if what we think is good and we're using our gifts will actually be harmful, but the Holy Spirit knows. And so the Holy Spirit works within us, And that is why we were told to wait until the Spirit comes. But then, of course, once the Spirit came, then we were sent to the ends of the earth. And it kind of makes me think of the song that we sang today. I was really excited when I saw that song on the list, by the way. Um, There's the lyric, And if our God is for us, then who can be against us? And if our God is with us, then who can ever stop us? It's so powerful because it's so true. We think we can do things, but we can't without the Spirit. But with the Spirit, we can do anything, any task that God sets for us. And nothing can stand against that. Even the persecution, even the floggings that the Church of Acts faced, that could not stand against the power of the Holy Spirit in the people. And even this very broken, very um, jaded society that we live in today, it can't stand against the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. So, things seem impossible, but they're not impossible. Now, that's part one, the spirit within us. But there's also another part, and that is the Spirit didn't take for granted that the Spirit, the church didn't take for granted that the Spirit dwelled within them. They devoted themselves to teaching and to fellowship and to sharing meals and to prayer. That is the first part of our passage today. It says that they devoted themselves. The word that they used for the word devoted is the same word used in chapter 114 
regarding a persistent devotion to prayer that we translate as constantly praying. So this word used for devoted is constantly, persistently pursuing. How many of you can say that about all aspects of your spiritual life? I think we always fail in one aspect or another, and there's always one aspect of our spiritual lives where we would say, yeah, I want that for that part. I want to be intentionally pursuing consistently and pursuing constantly this aspect. I want to devote myself persistently and constantly to prayer, or I want to devote myself persistently and constantly to teaching, to learning from others, to learning from the word. And that's what the early church did. They didn't just take for granted that, hey, I've devoted my life to Christ, and because of that, the Holy Spirit dwells in me. That's a truth, but they didn't take it for granted. They said, because of that, I need to push myself to continue learning, and I need to push myself to continue striving, because it takes work to be in tune to the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, But to be in tune to his promptings is a different story. And in order to become in tune to his promptings, we need to be more in line with God. We need to be aligned with um, what the desires of God's heart are. And we can only do that through constant prayer, through constantly learning the scriptures, through um, conversation with each other, with other Christians, as we push each other farther, and we challenge each other. That's how we become in tune with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit works through us. That was part one. But in order to do that, we need to push ourselves, and we need to be diligent about it, and we need to devote ourselves to it. That's part two. But now we move on to this third part, and this is kind of our focus for the day. This is the challenge question that I had asked at the very beginning about your fellowship definitions and and tendencies. This is where that comes in. Sometimes we think of reaching out to people as being this big, complicated task, but for the early church, it just seemed so simple and so natural. At least that's how they make it look in this passage. They made it look like no big deal. We just do these things so organically. It just comes to us. And that's really what it is. It was as simple as loving each other with the love of Christ. There isn't some complex equation. All they did was intentionally allow the Holy Spirit to empower them to love others. And that's going to be the key thing here. So I'm going to repeat it. They intentionally allowed the Holy Spirit to empower them to love others. And really, if there's nothing more that you take away from this morning, then take that away as a challenge. Now, I do remember that um, 
after the Holy Spirit came upon the people, 3,000 were added to their numbers, and that is a big deal. Um, and we almost expect to have to do something grand like that. But we talked about this in Bible study this morning, that Peter had given this great sermon, and, and it was to a great crowd of people, and a huge amount of people came and were baptized because of that, and it was like a revival. And it reminded me of like a Billy Graham type revival or a big um, call to Christ after a huge, huge retreat. And it's exciting and it, it feels good. But we also talked in Bible study today about how that probably doesn't work very well in today's society. In fact, you don't hear about things like that very often. Um, I don't think I've ever experienced a revival like that. Honestly, I've experienced retreats and calls to Christ, but I, I really, until I was in seminary and I saw old video footage of revivals, I wouldn't have guessed that something that amazing could happen because it just doesn't work in today's society. In order to hold a revival, you need to hold people's attention. You need a draw in order to get a crowd. But in today's society, nobody wants to come in the first place. There's something missing. We can't say, yes, we're going to hold a big revival. Come, because no, not many people will come, except those who are already interested in pursuing Christianity. Now, that feels bleak, but I do believe that the answer to today's society lies in fellowship. That organic thing that the church did after their big revival. Yes, that big revival added 3,000 to their numbers. Yes, that was big. But after that, the Holy Spirit remained with the people. And the people did something so simple and organic as spend time with each other. And I think that really is what grabs society today. Now, if you stick around the church long enough, you're going to hear the phrase, the word koinonia, and that is used here. Uh, usually it's Paul who uses it. He really likes that word. And Luke only uses the word koinonia once. That is right here in this passage. Koinonia, uh, many of us know, means fellowship. But that's just how we translate it. The truth is, koinonia means more than that. Koinonia refers to two different things. It refers to sharing, and it refers to a very intimate kind of fellowship that can be had through the Holy Spirit. So we cannot separate the Holy Spirit from this kind of fellowship just based on the meaning of this word. The Holy Spirit and this fellowship cannot be separated. But the word also means a deep kind of sharing. Now think about what we refer to as fellowship, whether it's the moment when we greet each other with the peace of Christ, or it's five minutes before or after in the narthex trying to catch up with everybody. What do we think of as fellowship in the church. That is not koinonia, 
that is greeting each other, and it's lovely. We do that every week, and it's very nice. Um, but that's not the type of fellowship they're referring to here. This fellowship is very intentional, and it has deep, far-reaching effects. This fellowship is like the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians. Again, it cannot be separated from the Holy Spirit, and that should say something. Um, I don't think it takes the Holy Spirit to shake a hand and say hi. But fellowship of the Holy Spirit is much deeper. So then it refers to sharing, and that's another question. What did the, Holy, what did the first church share? Well, they shared everything. They shared their possessions. I think that speaks to kind of a materialistic society that we live in today that, that shocks people. Um, they shared their finances. That's the same thing. When, when we say we're self-determined or self-serving, that stands in opposition. Um, they shared all of their resources. Our passage says that they shared everything that they had, and that's great, but beyond material goods, koinonia refers to a much, much deeper sense of sharing. It refers to the more important things that they shared, like building each other up and encouraging each other and supporting each other in this faith that wasn't well-respected. It meant um, that when there were new members of their community, they surrounded them. And when there were um, seasoned members of their community, they didn't stop surrounding them, they continued so that every hardship and every joy, those were the things that were shared. The, the personal stories, the trials, the tribulations, the stories of God's greatness, the stories of how God provides, those were the things that they shared and that deep sharing of life stories is part of the definition of koinonia. Now, in our busyness today, we've grown accustomed to watered-down fellowship, and not, not just in the church, but everywhere. The question, how are you, is so basic that we can say it and respond to it without ever even thinking about it. The words just kind of jump from your mouth. So I was thinking as I was, as I was going over this, I was thinking back to my freshman orientation in college. And the first couple of weeks, there were some questions that just spilled from your mouth. What's your name? Where are you from? What's your major? Over and over and over for probably the first three weeks easily. You're getting to know each other but there are so many new people that you're getting to know that those three questions just, they're easy and they're fast and they don't take much time, but somehow you can assess whether you want to have anything to do with this person or not. I, somehow those words are just very easy. And I got so used to that, those three questions, my first few weeks of college. Um, but then I went to my first InterVarsity meeting and I had more of those questions fact, a lot more. I was meeting other Christians on campus, and we still fell to those questions. What's your name? What's your major? Where are you from? And then out of the blue, this girl came up to me, and I'd never seen her before in my life, and she said, 
What's your story? And it just confused me and shocked me. And, and we're still really good friends because of that, probably because of that. I mean, she's a great person otherwise. But she didn't ask me my name first, and she didn't ask me where I was from or my major like everybody else. She, the very first words of her mouth was, what's your story? And that's just different. That's kind of the, the difference between fellowship and koinonia that I'm, that I'm thinking of here. There takes a different level of investment. For someone to ask you what your story is, it automatically implies that they want to know the answer instead of just the standard questions that you ask to move on. And that question was followed by a very intentional listening. So koinonia, very deep. Now, there were elements of koinonia. The definition was deep sharing and deep fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But there were elements within this. And the first element listed in here, they ate together. That's what the Church of Acts did. They ate together. And meals together to this day are very important. Meals um, symbolize our culture. Meals symbolize our upbringing. Meals are personal and intimate. And they open a way for deep conversation because you're seated together, face to face. But that's not all. I mean, go ahead, have a meal with somebody. In fact, I very much encourage it. But there are other parts of life today. I mean, go on a hike with somebody. Go pray with somebody. Sit with somebody face to face. Take this conversation beyond the superficial, how are you? And bring it to the level of what's God doing in your life? Because how are you, you can answer with a good and move on. What's God doing in your life? That's another story. That's a story in itself. It takes intentionality on both parts to ask that and to answer it. Now, sorry, I lost. There's a, a problem in society, and I, I have difficulty saying this is a problem. Um, we have this social media bug and I happen to like social media. I actually think it's a very good tool, especially now that I'm far away from my family and friends from back home. I think social media is fantastic. Um, and technology, I'm, I'm a fan. But there's also a problem with it because we're breaking off our face-to-face -face interactions. So it's very, very easy to go on Facebook and check in. And it's very easy to think of someone and send a snap and that's all good. I think we should still do that. But we have a problem with replacing our face-to-face -face interactions with these things. And that can't be. But here's the deeper problem and the deeper implications of that. Um, Self-harm levels, especially in younger generations, are going up and up and up. There's this feeling of disenchantment. There's this feeling of loneliness and without anyone to share that with, there's alienation. And the longer we push ourselves away from people and only communicate once in a while through social media, 
the harder it is to find support in the things that you're struggling with. And so this society that we live in, I don't think it was mentioned here uh, when we were talking about the definition of our society, but, but disenchantment and, and self-harm and pain, that's a big part of it. And some of that has to do with this incredible loneliness that people are starting to feel, this separation um, from larger society. We mentioned some things. We talked about um, self-driven we talked about narcissism. Those kind of lead to this idea of our society becoming very individualistic. We are very much working for our own good. We are very much saying, I put number one, I put numero uno first. Me, myself, I work for myself and I am important and everyone else is secondary. I care for other people, but I have to take care of myself. And the more we think like that, the more individually individualistic we get, and that alienates people, and people feel lonely in that. And compare this, this loneliness, to the fellowship of the believers in Acts. Koinonia is intimate. And it's like this deep healing balm that reaches deep to the soul. So in such a lonely and alienated society, it is imperative that we try and reach out to other Christians and to non-Christians because everybody needs community, whether we understand that in this society or not. And what does that say about us as Christians that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do just that. So if, if part of koinonia is the fact that the Holy Spirit empowers this fellowship, that we are specifically gifted for this deep, deep fellowship with each other, how can we use that? How can we use the fact that we are specifically created and specifically given this task of fellowship in a society that feels alone and separated and hurting. People see that. If we're having fellowship with each other, with other believers, with, with other Christians, other people see that looking in. And if we're having fellowship with non-believers, that's wonderful, that's great. They see that too. They, they see that you're taking time when maybe society has not taken that time. Now here's an, another element to this koinonia. The scriptures say they engaged in the fellowship with glad and sincere hearts. And I'm going to let you interpret the part that says glad. I, I hope you can figure it out. But what about sincerity? We did mention that this is a society that worries about injustice and that worries about the troubles of the world. And here's the thing. The generations raising up are very worried about that thing, about that sort of thing. Um, the fact that, that there's so much troubling this world is a problem. And they want real answers but this is how they see Christians. They see Christians um, as, as do-gooders. 
and not necessarily do-gooders who work for fighting against injustice, but do-gooders who are very concerned with a, a, an inflexible set of unnecessary rules. So I don't know if any of you have read the book Almost Christian, um, but it talks about this, this concept of a moralistic um, therapeutic deism, which says that Christians are no more than people who abide by a set of rules that may or may not be relevant just so that they can get the um, praise from God and God's God saying, good job, for that I give you peace. And that's how they see Christians and God, as, as people who no longer have relevance in the world and only care about the peace that God gives them for doing good things. And I wouldn't want any part of that either. That makes God completely irrelevant to society. And if we have very faulty, superficial, um, surfacey fellowship, and we're only ever saying, hey, how are you? I'm good. That's great. That's all people see of us. But when our fellowship is sincere, we can be very honest, and we can say, you know, this really rough thing happened. And sometimes that's necessary for people to hear. Because we can still have faith because we know that God is in control of these really rough things. And when we're sharing our stories with each other, we're hearing how I went through this horrible thing, but this is how God worked and how God provided. And we hear each other's stories and the people around us see that God is not just a superficial God who separates himself from all the trouble, but God is a God who interacts with our stories even in the hard, deep times. And therefore, God is not irrelevant to the world, but God is willing to interact with the hard times and the injustice. Fellowship is important. Glad hearts, sincere hearts. It shows the world that God engages. And that's what we need. That is where we're struggling. I think revivals are great. I would love to see this city changed and, and just struck with the Holy Spirit. But it has to look a little different. We can't just expect people to come and hear what we have to say because until they know that God is relevant, they don't care to come and find out. We have to show them that God is relevant in our lives by living the way God has asked us to. And that is in fellowship. Um, we're, we're running out of time, and so I'm not going to make you use your note cards today. But this is what I want you to think about. How can your fellowship with believers and non-believers be more relevant? I want you to take that away. So as our ushers come forward and we take our offering, that is what you want to think about. And if you feel like using your note card and writing down some ideas, then go ahead. Um, but we're going to pray, and the ushers are going to come forward to take um, both our regular offering and the love offering. And I, just, I want you to think, how can my fellowship be more relevant? All right, let's pray. 
God, thank you for each and every one of us here today. Thank you that you care about our stories. Thank you that you empower us to live for you and to live with each other in beautiful community. God, speak through our actions. Reach those who are hurting and lonely. Empower us to fellowship in the way which you have created us to do so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.